day. Welcome to Sedaris. Hey, if you've got a copy of the scriptures, if you brought it with you, open it up to the book of Exodus, second book of the Bible, chapter 20. If you don't have that, you can Google Exodus 20, and uh, we're going to continue our teaching. We've got a lot of work to do today. Uh, we've got five commandments. We're in the book of Exodus, five commandments, so I can't go over the whole history. If you're new with us, please check out the rest of the Exodus series. We've been walking through it since the beginning of 2021, and the big idea that we're saying is this, that, that God, just like he did with the Israelites, moves people out of bondage to slavery or spiritual bondage to sin so that he might move us through a wilderness period to something new. So God moves us out of one thing to move us into something. So it's freedom from, freedom for. And, and so what we see in the Ten Commandments is this idea that God is moving his people out of an old way of moral thinking, an old set of moral sensibilities that were taught to them, ingrained in them by living in the land of Egypt, a land that was ruled by a pharaoh who was godless and a group of gods that were not the one true God. So God moves them out of that moral sensibility and he wants to move them into a new moral sensibility. You tell you a lot of passion for this today. And th- this is exactly what he wants to do for us today as well. He wants to move us out of the moral sensibilities of our culture and society and move us into moral sensibilities that align with and reflect his character, which is good and perfect and beautiful. That's why he's given us the law. So, so I want you to hear this loud and clear before we start this. The law was never meant to save you from your sin. Jesus Christ was. So following the law never saved anyone because they never could. In fact, the law reveals that we are not holy or righteous on our own, but we need a holy and righteous Savior, which is why we come and we sing about Jesus and we say thank you and we say you've adopted us. We need Jesus, okay? So don't miss that because we're about to go through five of the six commands that have to do with how we treat fellow human beings. And you might feel the conviction of the Spirit of God. I pray that that you don't feel the conviction from me, but from the Spirit of God, because he's ultimately the one you are responsible to. And if you do, remember, your response should not be shame and guilt, but turning your gaze, your eyes, your attention, your worship, your trust to the person of Jesus Christ who died for your falling short of God's perfect holiness, okay? Don't miss that. Let me let that sink in. So today, we are going to look at, like I said, the half of the law that has to do with human-to-human interaction. Now, uh, real quick, and we've got this up on the screen for you, Jesus, because he's the reason that we're here, we wouldn't be here without Jesus, um, this is what he said. So this is in Matthew 22, I just want to read this to you. Matthew 22, verse 34 says this, but when the Pharisees... That was like the uber-religious group of people in Israel at the time that like wanted to follow the law to the T, and they'd added all this other stuff on top of the law, things that they thought were important. They come and they ask Jesus. The Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced this other group called the Sadducees, the Sadducees. So they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, he said, which is the great commandment in the law? It's referring back to the stuff we're studying. And Jesus said to him, 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So this is how Jesus answered what is the greatest. And he gives us these two big categories. Love God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. So that's like the first four commandments that we've taught the last few weeks. Love the Lord your God. Have no other God. Make no idols. Worship nothing else but God. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Keep the Sabbath. Keep it holy. Give it unto the Lord. But then Jesus says, and the second is like it, meaning not that it's on par, but it's a reflection of, it's essential to doing the first. So if you want to love the Lord your God with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your heart, how do you do it? One of the ways is by loving your neighbor as yourself, meaning you see your fellow human being, not just your physical neighbor, but anybody that you come in contact with, that's your neighbor, Jesus will explain through the parable of the Good Samaritan. Your neighbor is any fellow human being that you come across You're to love them as much as you love yourself, which is to be selfless. That's what it means, Jesus says, to fulfill the law. So we've got these first three commands, which are really vertical commands. It's how you interact with God. And then we have this fourth command that we talked about last week. It's sort of this hinge. It's both vertical and horizontal. That's the Sabbath. And then we have these last six, which are horizontal. Okay? We're going to do five of those today, so we've got a lot of work to do. Uh, And one of them next week, because we're saving it, because it's like an internalization of all the other laws, which is thou shall not covet. Now, I know it's Memorial Day weekend, but you've got to tune in. Somebody needs to hear this, meaning every single one of us, (laughs) because coveting is really the internalization of all the law. Again, no one keeps the law. We all fall short. We all need a savior. Okay, so let me read to you Exodus 20, the the, the commandments that we're going to look at today, Okay. So Exodus 20, 12 says this, honor your father and your mother, some of you about to get out your seat, don't do it because it'll look awkward, that your days may be long in the land that, your Lord, that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Boom, 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 boom. All have sinned and fallen short of these commands in one way or another. Why is that? Because I never murdered anybody. Maybe. Jesus says if you've even hated in your heart, you've committed an offense against this command, thou shalt not murder. Why is that? Why can Jesus say that? Well, one, he's God. So he says the Son of Man gets to interpret the law. But the other reason is that the law is paradigmatic. What does that mean? Um, The law is not exhaustive. Like, in the West, we've moved more towards an exhaustive legal system. It means there's got to be some sort of a law on the books for every particular instance. But in ancient times, and the law of Israel was like this, it's paradigmatic. Meaning, we're going to be given these moral principles, and then, in the next few chapters we're going to be giving sort of case law, meaning examples of these moral principles played out in different scenarios. And the scenarios aren't as clear-cut. We're not just talking about first-degree murder here. There's all sorts of ways to murder. 
So the law is paradigmatic, meaning it's not exhaustive. And that's one of the things Jesus is saying to the Pharisees. Listen, you've made a list of rules, and you think if you follow those lists of rules, then you've never actually broken a commandment. I tell you, that's not the way the virtue of my law works. There are virtues and principles that are rooted in my character behind these laws, and there's many ways to offend my character and my law. So it's paradigmatic. So in one sense, the Ten Commandments help us see the kind of variability of these. So we have what we might consider wide uh, wide periscopes of the law, meaning, um, for instance, never steal is one of the commandments we'll look at today. Well, you say, like, well, that's pretty wide. Then we have the commandment, thou shall not bear false witness. And it's really specifically talking about in the court of law. So it's a very detailed or narrow view. So does that mean that lying outside of a courtroom is okay? And the answer would be no. We're given detailed or narrow commandments, and we're given wide commandments to show us that there's variability and the law stretches out over any particular instance. Does this make sense? So the law covers things in the most general way and it covers things in the most specific or tiniest of nuance. The, love, the, the law covers it all. So what does that mean? It means that we must go above and beyond to consider others as just as valuable as ourselves. We cannot be looking for ways around this law. So, so what could we say about this? I think this is what Jesus is saying. The big idea here is that God's law is a law of what? Love. God's law is a law of love. Why? Because God is love. First John tells us that. God is love. Literally, he is the definition of love, so his law is love. So this is a law of love, and what does love not do? Love does not do the minimum. Love does not do the minimum. Love does not look for every possible loophole to get out of love. Love actually seeks to go far more exceedingly above and beyond the law and what it commands or demands. So I actually want to read to you a quick passage from 1 John. 1 John chapter 4. I think we have this one as well up on the screen. 1 John. John was one of the disciples of Jesus, so he knew uh, this Jesus love pretty well. John says this. Beloved, he's talking to the church, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. You see how this works? So the law, and particularly these last six commandments, are the expression of God's love to the world. God has put his, his spirit into us that we might be his hands and his feet in love. That's what this is all about. So it's not primarily about just don't break any of these commandments. It's about what do these commandments tell us about how God views love and how do we live that out in the world. That's what we're going to do today. And we'll see... Five this week, one next week, 
through both the Ten Commandments and then the case law and the chapters that follow, examples of this played out in some unusual ways. You're like, why did they pick that example? But we're going to see how the law is paradigmatic of what the, the, the moral sensibilities of God are so that he might change us. So, so one way to think about this is, you know, I've got, I've got two sons, and they're breaking laws all the time, and I'm trying to reform or massage their moral sensibilities to reflect the character of God. And I'm doing that through setting rules and boundaries and helping them to see. When you throw a very hard toy car at your brother's face, that is not love. (laughs) Therefore, I forbid it. And there are consequences because I'm trying to shape your heart. Not just so they don't throw cars at each other, but so that they understand that their brother is made in the image of God. I'm doing that through the setting law. God's doing the same thing with his people because they're coming out. Their hearts have been corrupted by their time in bondage, and God wants to restore their hearts to look like his heart. You get the idea? God is shaping us through his law so that our moral sensibilities might be restored. Thank you, Jesus. Okay. Now, before we get into these laws and the case laws that are attached to them, I want to show you that your moral sensibilities um, are probably a bit better even than the people of Israel were coming out of Egypt. And the reason that your moral sensibilities aren't as corrupted, and why some of these things you read are going to seem like, that's pretty obvious, is because you live in a country in which the founders of the Constitution and the law were at least affected by, and the Western world generally, by the moral sensibilities written for us in this book. So I'm not, I'm not saying anything else besides the moral sensibilities are interwoven to some degree into the fabric of our moral thinking because we live in America. So we'll see similar moral sensibilities that we're about to read in American law. I'm not saying American law is perfect. What I'm saying is it's already affected our culture. So you got to understand where and how and then how to apply. That doesn't mean it hasn't gone astray over the years. So to do that, I need help. And so we're my blazer today because we're inviting a distinguished guest up to the stage. Um, this is my good friend and our sister, a family member here at Sedaris, Amanda Campbell. Come on up. She, uh, yeah, give her a round of applause. I, be- I believe she's doing this pro bono, but her um, hourly rate, very expensive, can't afford it. And um, um, uh, so this is Amanda. She's a lawyer amongst many other more important things, but this is one of the things she does. So tell us what you do for work, of why I'm bringing you up here. Sure, so I am a uh, staff attorney for the Supreme Court of Virginia. Um, I lived in Virginia when I got the job, but then COVID and everything. Uh, So if you think about the US Supreme Court, uh, they get too many cases every year, and so they have to decide which ones to take, right? And so uh, lots of times in the news you'll hear, that the Supreme Court agreed to hear a certain case. Uh, So same thing happens with the Supreme Court of Virginia and every other state. They get too many cases. uh, They can't hear them all. And so I'm part of a staff that uh, helps the court decide which cases to take. So I read a lot of trial transcripts and then briefs uh, arguing that the Virginia Supreme Court should take the case. And uh, I write about those cases and then talk to the justices about them. So it's a cool job. Yeah, and make sure you say what you need yes. to say. So here's my disclaimer. Uh, 
because it is a court. Um, my views expressed are my own. They do not reflect the views of the Supreme Court of Virginia. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. And I just want to say the views expressed by Manny Campbell do not represent, re represent the views of Sedaris Church necessarily, though they probably do. Okay, so uh, here's my next question. I have a list of questions. I, I hope you like learning because we're going to learn today together. So could you explain, this, this is a small question, could you explain the Constitution to us and uh, how it relates to statutory law and uh, the idea of, uh, what is it, precedence? Yeah. Sure. So the Constitution gives us these, these broad principles and then statutes are something that, that the federal government and the states use to uh, really give us guidance on our everyday lives, how the, how the principles play out in our everyday lives. So an example that most people can uh, grasp is like Miranda rights, right? So you see this on TV all the time. You have the right to remain silent. Uh, you have a right to an attorney, those sorts of things. Well, that comes from the Constitution, the Fifth Amendment of the Constitution, which says that you have a right against self-incrimination and you have a right to due process of law. So... <laughs> That doesn't mean a lot, right, in our everyday lives. Um, but then states have to write statutes that interpret that. So they say, well, when you're under arrest, police officers have to read you a certain, uh, usually it's a card that says you have the right to remain silent. That's not from the Constitution, right? That's the state saying this is what you have to do. Um, you have the right to an attorney. If you do not have an attorney, one will be provided to you, right? Again, it's not in the Constitution, but it comes down through the statutes. Um, now, the role of the courts is to interpret the statutes and say whether they align with the constitutional principles or not. So we call them Miranda rights because this guy, Mr. Miranda, um, in Arizona, uh, was not read his rights uh, as, as um, the Supreme Court said, they should be read to him. So uh, police officers read him some rights. He sued and said, I didn't understand my rights. And the US Supreme Court said, you're right. Not only do you have to be told that you have the right against self-incrimination and to an attorney, you have to understand that, you have to waive it in a knowing, voluntary, and intelligent way. And so we get that precedent. So then every state has to make sure that their laws reflect what the U.S. Supreme Court has said the Constitution actually means when it says you have the right against self-incrimination and the right to due process. Um, I, could, I, I could ask questions all day, so I will. So how do you see the, this sort of flow of ideas represented in Exodus? I know I asked you to read through Exodus and the law and kind of show where is it similar, how is it maybe a little bit different? Yeah, so we see sort of a combination of, the, the, you know, first, the Ten Commandments are like the Constitution, right? They give us these general principles. And then we have... The, the case law uh, that comes after that, that's sort of a combination of statutes and precedent because they take specific examples and say, in this scenario, uh, it, you are punished because of whatever you've done. So the example, right, thou shall not murder. Exodus says, um, if you strike a man and kill him, you'll be put to death, right? So it's a specific example of murder. It's defining that legal term, murder, um, for our, hopefully not every day, but for our, our actual lives. Good. Yeah, so, um, so now uh, we've had this conversation a couple of times. So explain 
to me and to everyone the difference between criminal and civil law? Because I think we see both in Exodus. Yeah, We, we do, yeah. So um, it's really about the consequences. It's the easiest way to think about it. So um, in criminal law, if you violate a criminal law, your liberty is at stake and, and sometimes your life is at stake. When you violate a civil law, your property is at stake or your money. And in the in U.S. law, it's much more difficult to prove a criminal case than a civil case. Absolutely. So with criminal cases, the, the standard is beyond a reasonable doubt. Civil cases, most of the time, it's just preponderance of the evidence. It's 51%, um, whereas criminal law, it's closer to 90-something percent, depending on who you're talking to. Yeah, and we, we see that same distinction in the law here that, mm -hmm. you know, if, if somebody's property is damaged, there's a much lower uh, penalty, but also a lower burden of proof, for, uh, for instance. Now, one of the things I see in Exodus that I asked you about was, could you explain how uh, the idea of negligence works in American law? Sure. So negligence is a tort, so it's a crime against a person or a property. And to, uh, negligence is, is interesting. It's, it's about carelessness, really. Um, but to prove negligence, you have to prove that someone has a duty to you. They breached that duty they caused whatever harm you suffered, and you can prove some kind of damages, so usually money. Um, and the duty that we all have to each other is a duty of reasonable care. So you cannot, for example, spill some coffee on a linoleum floor that you know other people are gonna um, walk over because uh, that would be a breach of your duty of reasonable care to the people that would walk behind you. And if someone were to slip on that coffee and be injured, you could be liable for those uh, medical bills. Now, could you actually be liable if they slipped and fell and, and hit their head and died? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, so there's this interesting principle in tort law that's called the eggshell plaintiff. So you take plaintiffs as they come. Uh, if somebody has a... a skull that is as weak as an eggshell, you will still be liable for uh, them breaking their skull, even if you never could have anticipated that they would have that weak of a skull. Right, so, so the idea there is like, you, you, as a human being in America, you should be thinking about the weakest possible person and what is, what's your duty to reasonably care for them you know, so it takes a lot of moral energy and thinking about other people, because you've got to think about the eggshell plaintiff, you've got to think about people with bad hips, all sorts of things. Exactly. Yes. And it's something we don't normally think about, right, on, on a daily basis. We're not going through life thinking about this. Um, but people who get sued think about it a lot. Uh, business owners think about it a lot. <laughs> um, what kind of duty do they owe to the people that come into their businesses? Because it, it matters. We're a litigious society, and yeah. so it, it certainly matters. Do you see an example of that form of unintentional tort here in the in the law? Yeah, so so one is about, uh, you know, the classic ox example. So when an ox uh, bore, or sorry, gores someone, um, if you had no reason to believe that that ox was, was dangerous or aggressive, then you just have to kill the ox. But if that ox has done it before, has a history of goring uh, or a history of aggression, then if that ox gores somebody else, then the, the ox's owner will be liable for the death of that person. And so that's what we call foreseeability. So when I talked about causation in, in the four parts of negligence, that's, that's the, the legal or the proximate cause, uh, meaning that the, the result of your actions 
were foreseeable, or sorry, the harm was foreseeable um, when, you, when you did what you did. So you kept the ox alive, you didn't kill it after it gored the first person. It was foreseeable that it was gonna do, do that to somebody else, so you're liable for that. And, and this gets me to my question. You brought up this term to me when we were talking. Explain what attractive nuisance is. This is like a, this was fascinating to me and I think gets at the heart of what this unintentional liability gets at as well. Sure, so an attractive nuisance is something that landowners have to deal with. Um, we don't value a lot of rights above landowners' rights, the rights to just do what they want on their own property. But um, the principle of attractive nuisance says that if you have something on your property that children, small children, will be attracted to, to the point where they're willing to trespass onto your property to, to get to that thing, um, and that thing is dangerous, you can be liable for the harm that that thing causes. So pools are the best example, uh, but you see out in, in more rural areas, um, different uh, large machinery or reservoirs. Um, and so the landowner actually has a, has a duty to, for example, put up a fence to prevent children from accessing that attractive nuisance. <laughs> yeah, so, so you told me an example of a case in which there was like a, there was like a, a large reservoir or pond and there was a water tower close enough to the lake that a child could see it and potentially think that'd be fun to jump off the water tower into the lake. You have a responsibility to put some sort of a gate on that water tower so that the child doesn't do something that we would all see as that's dumb. <laughs> that's, we shouldn't tell our kids to do that. But the, li the, the responsibility you have to another human being, particularly a human being that it isn't fully, you know, again, the idea of think about the, the weakest possible, um, like a child's morally or sensibly weak, so you got to think about them. I was like, this is a fascinating part of the law that, that I, I totally understand. So my moral sensibilities are in this way intact, but it was truly revolutionary when Moses was putting this down in the law, and we'll see that today through a number of instances. So um, do you have any final thoughts about like that idea, attractive nuisance, and how that sort of like what's so amazing about, or crazy or weird about that? Yeah, I mean, I think it, the fact that we're saying that children would be in the wrong here, right? If we, we think about it, the children are gonna trespass, they're gonna be doing something they shouldn't be doing, and yet we still protect them over the landowner's rights to do whatever he or she wants with his own land. Um, it's not something you see a lot of in the law, and so uh, it's just, it's, it's sort of an oddity, but it shows how much we value, uh, in this sense, small children um, and, and, and acknowledge small children are um, rascals and they do what they want and they get in trouble. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. Well, thanks, Amanda, for doing this. Let's give Amanda a round of applause. I think deep down I always wish I went to law school, but, you know, in a sense, I'm a lawyer of the Word of God. So um, I could talk to Amanda forever about this stuff. And it's just fa it's fascinating. And, and, you know, just drilling down to that idea of negligence, unintentional uh, torts that she talked about, reasonable care, duty, down to this idea of attractive nuisance where clearly what we're doing in our minds, like if that doesn't seem that strange to you, that somebody else's trespassing and actions could make you responsible, if that doesn't seem weird to you, it's just a sign that the, the moral sensibilities of God, our creator, have flowed through you, both in your design and image of him, but also through the giving of the law and the way the law has worked through Western society out even into these particular laws of our land. 
And so we see then that there's like a hierarchy of moral virtue and value. And we see that too in God's law. So now what I want to do is actually look at each of these commands and look at a little bit of the case law and see how this works. You didn't know you were coming to an intro to law class, did you? We won't even charge you for it. It's amazing. Okay. So command number five. Let's look at this in the text. Exodus chapter 20. And um, let's just see how this works. The first, the first command that we're going to look at is to honor your father and your mother. Honor your father and your mother. So, verse 12. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord, that's Yahweh your God, is giving to you. So remember, they're headed out to the promised land, and God says, if you want your life to be long in the land, and we'll look at what that means in a second, one of the things I'm commanding you to do is to honor your father and your mother. Now, what does that mean? That could be interpreted in so many different ways. Well, the thir- first thing I want you to just notice, trying to look at the text here, it says, that the, you know, he's talking about the land that the Lord God is giving to you, right? So why does he go, why is this the first command? Well, part of the reason it's the first command is God is wanting you to, to recognize sort of the parallelism between God as the giver of life, the giver of land, the giver of all good things, and your parents. Your parents gave you life. Your parents gave you things. And your parents are therefore, just like God, worthy of honor and respect. So, that makes sense to us. Um, so what else can we learn about what does it mean to honor? Well, we're going to look at the rest of Scripture and, and some case law. The first thing I want to point you to is Ephesians chapter 6. That's in the New Testament, and the Apostle Paul, who was a great student of the law, is now applying the law of Christ to this principle. And he'll actually quote specifically from Exodus 20.12 in his letter to the Ephesians. And there Paul will tell um, Tell the people to obey your parents, just as it said, you shall honor. So he chooses to help us to see that part of honoring your parents is obeying your parents. So I think that's a part of what it means to honor your parents. Now, this is important to be said. He's assuming that your parents are not asking you to do things that conflict with or come against the law of God, right? Because remember the hierarchy. Love the Lord your God is above honor your parents, So if your parents were to ask you to do anything that contradicted what God has asked you to do, both in the law or internally through perhaps a calling or something, it's okay not to obey your parents. But for the most part, you should seek to understand your parents as wisdom givers and obey them, particularly the younger you are. So that's another way to obey. Is there anything else in the case law that would help us? Well, look at Exodus 21, so the very next chapter, 21, verse 15. This is sort of an extrapolation of the principle of the sensibility to honor your parents. It says, whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. That seems intense. (laughs) Thanks, Captain Obvious. Yes, that's uh, an intense law. Now, one of the things I'll say is, shall be put to death. Did that mean they were actually putting to death any child that struck their parents? I don't think so. The point here is that such an offense in the sight of God that it's worthy of death. And we'll see other ways, even with murder, where there's ways to, there's things that God provides, other ways of punishment and ways around. So, but it's that serious of an offense for striking your father or your mother. Okay, that's part of honoring. Don't punch your parents in the face. You're like, I got that. Well, what else? 
Verse 17, 21, 17. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. Okay, now I'm going to use the, 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 the weapon of my tongue to speak against my parents in a dishonoring way. That's part of honoring. Now, again, we don't, remember, this is not exhaustive. So it's like, what words can't we use? The idea is that you would look at your parents in su- such a way, and I know not all of our parents are exactly the same, and some probably are deserving of curses. But the point here is that you, out of love for God, choose and try to honor your parents in this life. It's a reflection of who God is. And finally, I'll just say, what does it mean and why does he bring up this is the only place, and, and Paul will point that in Ephesians. This is the first command with a promise, the promise of you shall live long in the land. Why does he bring that up? Well, I don't think he's talking about individually, so it's not honor your parents and then you'll get to, uh, to live a long life. Maybe, maybe not. I think he's talking about corporately the people of Israel. If they become a culture that honors parents, their life in the land will be long and good. Meaning what? I think this is perhaps the most important application or, or part of honoring your parents. I think, I think what God is making sure is, listen, when your parents become weak, when they're unable to care for themselves, when they're unable to farm, you will honor them by caring for them. And if generation after generation chooses to care for, again, another weak and vulnerable population, you will live long in the land. You will be a culture that breeds life and long life and good life. So part of honoring your parents means to commit to take care of them when they can't take care of themselves. Okay, how do I apply that in my life today? I'm not going to tell you, (laughs) okay? That's going to look a little bit different for everyone, but it's something to deeply consider as God reshapes your moral sensibilities through his word, okay? Commandment number six, verse 13. Pretty simple, you shall not murder Literally, um, if you look at the Hebrew, it could say, you shall not take someone's life with selfish motives. So we get into this idea that we just talked about. What truly distinguishes selfish motives? It's not maybe so simple. In fact, the Hebrew word here for murder isn't just like first-degree planned murder. The Hebrew word actually includes in its very definition the ideas of carelessness and negligence. So it's causing human death through carelessness or negligence, including intentionality. Similar to what Amanda was talking about. Why is this? God is the giver of life. God is the author of life. No one else. So to take it into your own hands to be the taker of life is to put yourself in the place of God. God says, don't do that. Part of loving me means to know who I am in relation to you and to not try to be me. So if God is an author of life, how could we say this? This command says be very careful and and maybe even overly considerate so as to not end a life that God has created. There's so much more in this moral sensibility than just don't get on dateline. See, I knew everybody that tunes in every week because I made that joke two weeks ago. Don't cover up. If you didn't hear it, you can go back and listen to it. Don't, don't chuckle. Okay. <laughs> so here we go. This is intense stuff. So let's go look at that goring ox illustration. Chapter 21, verse 28 says this. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten. But the owner of the ox shall not be liable. Just like Amanda said. 
But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in, does not build a suitable um, uh, uh, enfencement, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned. Just quickly point out how profound that would have been in the society to say a man or a woman, saying men and women's lives are of equal value. This is beautiful, the word of God. The ox shall be stoned to death, and the owner also shall be put to death. Now here we see a little caveat. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. If, the, if a gore is a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with accordingly by the same rule. You see that? It's just more complex than simply thou shall not commit first degree murder. You have an obligation, God says, to protect the life of your neighbors, those who you come in contact with or who your livestock come in contact with. That's your responsibility. It's so much bigger than how we tend to see in our narrow, corrupted sensibilities. So let me look at another one. Verse 21, or chapter 21, verse 20. When a man strikes his slave, now think about this like, Whipping his slave. This is an uncomfortable reality that was a part of the ancient Near East culture. Every culture had people who were bond servants or slaves doing, sort of working off their debt through slavery. It's different than the slavery in the American South, and we'll, we'll see that actually in a second. The, the law of God forbids that, clearly. But th- this was a part of the economic system, slavery or bond servants. And it says if, if you're sort of striking them, even un- not, not to hurt them, Necessarily, it's hard to understand why anybody would be doing that anyhow. But it says male or female, again, this equivocating of the genders, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. Which is to say what? This is so utterly transforming, this law. We don't see it now, right, because we live in a society that was rooted in the sensibilities of this book. No other culture would have thought that a slave had the same value as every other type of citizen. God does. God sees male, female, slave, free, young, old. It doesn't matter. They're fully equal in value in the sight of God. So if you take a slave's life, even accidentally, because you whip him too hard, you're liable. Your life for his. Utterly transformational 3,500 years ago. Need to look at one more example. Chapter 21, verse 22. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her child come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined. As the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. This is uncomfortable. It seems obvious to me. That if you believe that God is the author of this book, 
that God, through the pen of Moses, has told us that what God sees in the womb of this pregnant woman is a life. So I, I just feel compelled. I need to say just a few words about abortion. Now, I want you to hear me very clearly. I'm going to tell you who I'm not talking to right now. I'm not talking to anyone who is not yet a Christian. Because that probably means that you don't believe that God wrote these words. So I'm not talking to you. I'm not talking about politics here. I don't care if you tend to vote Republican or you tend to vote Democratic or Democrat. I'm not talking about politics. I'm not talking about the American legal system. I'm not talking about any of that. And I also want to say I'm not talking to anybody who has personally experienced an abortion. I'm not talking to you. I want, I want you to hear, if, if you fall in any of those categories, particularly the third, that all of us has fallen short of one of these Ten Commandments, probably all of them. In fact, probably everyone has hated someone in their heart. So everyone is liable for the Sixth Commandment. So I'm not talking to you if you've experienced an abortion. I want you to know that there's grace and forgiveness at the foot of the cross. There's nothing that you can do to separate you from the love of God. Nothing. So I'm not talking to you. Except to say, come near to Jesus. Who am I talking to then? Here's who I'm talking to. I'm talking to Christians who believe that this is the word of God who might tend towards willful ignorance, carelessness, negligence when it comes to thinking about this issue, this reality that millions of unwanted pregnancies are end, ended in abortion. I don't think the law of God leaves it open for us to not think about this. This is why we have an instance of two men who are fighting each other and accidentally hit a pregnant woman. And if there is harm, we see for the first time in Scripture a life for a life, an eye for an eye. Now these aren't literal eye for an eye. It's saying there's equivalence to the harm that is done. Up and including a life for a life. I'm also not advocating, just to make it clear, that the punishments that are applied here should be carried straight over to our day and age. I'm not, I'm not saying that. What I'm pointing to is the fact that there is an understanding in God's eyes of what's in the womb is a human life. I don't think this is the only place in Scripture that points us to that but it just feels very strong to me. So what do we do with that? What, if we, what do we do with this information that God has chosen to give us in the case law so that we might understand how to live out his love in the world? Well, first, all Christians should be thinking about this and asking this question. Ask this question. No matter what the laws of the land happen to be, in this country or any country, how can I fight for life which is to say, how can I help reduce the number of pregnancies that end in aborting the baby? I'm going to give you three ideas. This is not an exhaustive list. These are three ideas that I thought of this week. Number one, help reduce the amount of unwanted pregnancies. We can do that. You see, we don't have to change any laws to help reduce the amount of unwanted 
pregnancies. Personally, you can do this by counseling friends, family, those who care and seek your wisdom to act wisely in their sexual lifestyle. Societally, we can support both financially and personally through our involvement, through our time, programs that mentor, support, underparented young people. We can do that. This includes counseling people towards safe sex, even the use of contraceptives. Okay, so we have to be creative in how we seek life because God has called us to seek life as he seeks life. Number two, we can help those with unwanted pregnancies find crisis counseling that includes alternatives to abortion. So personally, you can do this. Like, think about, this is why you can't be negligent or careless in thinking about this issue and and seeing what the Word of God says. If somebody comes to you and asks you, I've become pregnant, what should I do? What will you tell them? Have you thought about that? What will you tell them is happening in their body? How will you love them and care for them while they're in crisis trying to decide what to do? Or will you throw your hands up and say, I don't know. How will you advise them to think about the child in their womb. Don't be lazy. Don't be negligent in your counsel. Societally, we can make sure that there's our alternatives, that there's counseling centers that will include a robust explanation of the options. Make sure they're financially supported. Make sure they're numerous, easy to find. I don't know how, what this will look like, but we can be that as a church. That somebody can come to the church if they've had an unwanted pregnancy and not feel the shame or be pushed away. Whether that's coming and talking to a pastor, coming and talking to a deacon, coming and talking to a family member at Sedera. Like, people should feel safe to come to the church and they should have places outside of the church because maybe they're uncomfortable with the church where they can go and get clear alternatives to abortion. Third thing. I think this is probably... They're all important. Everything's important. It's a cumulative case for how we can can fight for life as God fights for life. The third thing we can do is we can help make the argument ironclad for people that no child born into this world will go unloved. Not in our city, not in our country. How can we do that, both personally and societally? We need to make adoption and foster care and the system so strong, so sourced, with people waiting in line to adopt, that if anybody comes and tells a young woman that if you have this child, they will not be loved, that argument will seem hilarious because they just know of how many people are hoping to adopt. Loving people. We must be fighting to make that argument obsolete. So every Christian should pray, God, are you calling me to adoption? God, are you calling me to be a part of, of fighting back against the argument that a child born into this world would go unloved? How are you help, wanting me to do that? You want me to help in the foster care support system? You want me to be a foster parent? You want me to adopt? How many kids do you want me to adopt? We should be so for adoption that it's just hilarious to think that a child born into this world due to an unwanted pregnancy would go unloved. God, Give us the grace and the courage to do this. Whether you've had kids already, and now you have more parenting to do, or you've never had kids or never will have kids, God, do you want me to adopt? How do we love life 
like God loves life. Commandment number six. Commandment number seven says this. You shall not commit adultery. This is pretty straightforward. Don't cheat on your wife, but it includes so many other things. In fact, in the case law, we see examples of other types of sex. Um, Let me just give you one real quick. Uh, 22.16. 22.16 says this, If a man seduces a virgin or a young woman of marrying age who is not betrothed, and he lies with her, that has sex with her, he shall give the bride price, meaning he shall marry her. Play the engagement honorarium or something the way they did in the, in the past for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly, utterly refuses to give her to him, I just love thinking about that. People in insurance are like, you're not marrying my wife. He shall then, the man who has slept with a woman who is not his wife, he shall still pay money equal to the bride price for the young woman. You see, there's so much value attached to the marriage covenant and to the sexuality of the woman. She's not an object. So coveting has a much wider interpretation than simply don't have sex with a woman or a man who is not your spouse, though it includes that. So what is the law here telling us about God's character? Well, God is a God of fidelity and faithfulness. God has said, have no other God besides me because I have no other people besides you. So one of the ways that we live out God's character in our marriage covenant is by not breaking our fidelity. So it's so much bigger than simply the emotional wreckage that it would do to your marriage. Though that will happen, it has something to do with the glory of God and his character. So love the marriage covenant as much as God loves the marriage covenant. And in this area of sex and marriage, I just, I just feel like as much as some of these other things we see in American law, i got to say, it seems to me that our moral hierarchies have been hijacked when it comes to these areas, particularly around sex. We've moved the virtue of sexual freedom above every other freedom, whether it's the value of a child the value of a woman. We've said, my sexual fulfillment and pleasure is above all. We've got to wrestle with that. Have we put sex and sexual freedom over and above the more important things in the moral hierarchy of God's character? Okay. Number eight. Theft. Don't steal stuff. (laughs) Just don't steal stuff. I can't talk about this for a long time, but there's all sorts of interesting laws about not stealing stuff in here. And and like I said, we can't get from it, but God's going to tell you don't steal from him. Don't steal from others. Don't, if you borrow something, don't be careless with it. Because if you're careless with it and something happens to it, you're liable for it. And then one I do want to point out is 2116. Where it says, whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. Listen to what it says. If you steal a man and make him your slave, or sorry, and, and sell him, and somebody else makes him their slave, guess who dies? Both. 
the man who stole him and kidnapped him, and the man who bought him. I can't for the life of me see how somebody could read the law of God and allow chattel slavery to happen in the, in the world of the West. And it happened, and we repent of it, and we acknowledge it. But it's clear here that God says, kidnapping a man, making him your slave, both are punishable by death. Because human life has value, far greater value than even possessions. This is truly revolutionary, even though it can be hard for us to read. So as you're reading through this other case law, just, just try to put yourself back in this time where a slave literally was treated as property. And God says, they're not property, they're my child. They're of equal value to you. And so if you take them, you're stealing from me. God's character is one of giving people personal autonomy, meaning you have true things that God has given to you. And so if you take someone else's things, you're offending God, who is the one that gave. God is not going to force himself upon you. He gives you your personal autonomy. He respects that. We need to respect others because it reflects God. Finally, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, or that is, any human being. And it's really talking about in the courtroom here, and there's all sorts of examples in the case law. So it's saying, like, listen, when someone's life is at line and you come into the courtroom and you lie about them in order to get them convicted, that is an offense to God. Truth is God's. God is truth. So when you lie against truth, you lie against God. There's all sorts of examples. And one that's really interesting, it even, it even says in one of the case laws, even if you're lying on behalf of a poor person. Why do I bring that up? God's saying, like, even if your intentions are good, and you're trying to help out a poor person who's in a lawsuit against a rich person, don't lie. Don't bear false testimony. Truth is more important to God than wealth or money. So don't sell your soul for things that perish. Truth stands forever. Be a person of truth. Jesus says, let your yes be yes, let your no be no. So even though it's talking about the courtroom here, which is sort of the greatest offense, would be to lie so that someone is accused of something they have not done, don't do it at any time. This is the law of God. This is the character of God at stake. We need to be a people who seek to understand and allow the law to transform our moral sensibilities and to see fellow human beings as so much more than a loophole to get around, to see them as God's image bearers, fully valuable in the sight of God so they should be in our eyes. How can I love them well? This is a law of love. How can I not break God's law because that is an affront to his character? How do we do this? One, one final beautiful law here. This is in uh, chapter 23, verse 4, says this. If you meet your enemy's ox, your enemy's ox, or, or his donkey, and they've gone astray, you shall bring it back to your enemy. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down in its, under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving, it, or leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. Your enemy. Love your enemy. Maybe the most transformative thing that Jesus Christ ever said. I don't want you just to love your friends or those you like. I want you to love your enemy. And why? Why? 
Because while we were still enemies of God, while we were in full rebellion, while we cursed his name and yelled at him and took him in vain and worshipped other gods, you know what God did for us? He sent his son Jesus to die for that rebellion, that sin. He took it upon himself. He loved us while we were his enemies. And so he says, if you really want to reflect my character to the world, be my people, you'll love. You'll follow the law of love even when that law tells you to love your enemy. This is the law of Christ. This is the gospel of Jesus. This is the way the world is transformed. This is the way the kingdom comes to earth as it is in heaven. When the people of God say, I will be like God and love even my enemies.